Broadway Bullet, Volume 806, Breaking the Rules, for September 26th, 2017. Visit broadwaybullet.com or iTunes and subscribe for free to not miss a single episode. Vernon loves to mess with audience expectations, and he certainly succeeds with The View Upstairs. The cast album just came out, and the show is opened in L.A. He tells us all about it. Jay Harrison Gee has taken an unusual road to his Broadway debut, taking over as Lola in Kinky Boots. He talks about the art of drag and the long run. And Gabrielle Stravelli has released her new cabaret CD. She talks about her career and lets us hear a couple songs from her new release. So... Hop on board. All right, welcome back, everybody. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo. And I want to let everybody know it's about that time. We're getting ready to head back to New York City for another round of interviews for the next half of our season. So if uh, you know of somebody or you are somebody who is really worthy of a story on here, and remember, we don't just talk with the bigwigs. We like hearing all different sides of the story and backstage all around. So uh, tell the people that should be on here that they can send me an email to broadwaybulletnyc at gmail.com and uh, tell me what's going on. We're going to be doing interviews from the 23rd through the 27th of October, again, in the wonderful Dramatist Guild uh, fun space, fantastic availability, um, great organization to be involved in. Yeah, and they're one of our sponsors. Our other sponsor is the University of Providence with a brand new program I've created, Theater and Business Arts. You can learn the art of being an artist as well as the business of being an artist. Do, do, do. That's what we want you to do here. And uh, we got some people again in this episode talking just about that, how you have to uh, watch the business side of your career as well. So without any further ado, let us uh, jump into, well, our sponsor and then our program. Special thanks to our location sponsor. Thanks to the Dramatist Guild Fund for welcoming us to their space for today's podcast. Providing the music hall at DGF for writers to use for free is one of the many ways the Dramatist Guild Fund supports writers. I encourage you to find out more about DGF by visiting their website at www.dgffund.org or connecting with them on Twitter at DGFund. On the boards. Before we talk with Max Vernon, composer and book writer and lyricist for The View Upstairs, let's listen to the opening number from The View Upstairs. In the summertime heat on Ibervale Street, sex and incense mixed in the air. 
Met a man who shook my bones With one penetrating stare He said, no reason to fear Boy, your mama ain't here Come home with me instead And it was heaven on alone I walk out in a stranger's bed And I said, I think I've found some kind of paradise No angel wings, no fairy dust Just the rush I'm lost, but it's alright. And though this place is far from heavenly, no golden throne, the ecstasy's just temporary, but it's I am sitting here with composer, lyricist, and book writer Max Vernon, who is definitely on a roll. Uh, I, his show, as as we're taping this, he is just closing up uh, uh, off Broadway production of the, the view, view upstairs. The view upstairs. I don't want to say from upstairs. The view upstairs, which I got a chance to see. Um, the cast album uh, is coming out and will have come out uh, probably at this point that we air. And then K-pop is opening at Ars Nova. So you've got a busy, busy year here, don't you? Yeah, it's been a, it's been a really exciting time. <laughs> How long has... Burning, I know you've burning written the book. midnight oil. Yeah. I think my downstairs neighbors definitely think I'm schizophrenic at this point. Because, like, my magical creative hour is, like, 2 a.m. So at 2 a.m. on any given night, you either 
hear me singing songs that take place in a gay bar in 1973, <laughs> or you hear me singing in Korean, you know, belting with electronic music and synthesizers. So I'm definitely a nightmare if you live with me in the same building. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got several things I'd like to talk to you about, and maybe we'll kind of keep it this order, but I'd love to talk to you about the view upstairs, what it's about, and because I'm sure you're going to be wanting to other theaters to produce it soon. Um, um, yeah, I'm really excited. We have, I think, four productions of it happening next year in different theaters around the country, and I'm hoping that will continue and it'll go on and have a really healthy regional life. Yeah, and then K-pop opening in the cast album, but then I'd also like to talk about what you've done to kind of build up your career and, and your education at the at Tisch, uh, at the NYU Musical Theater Writing, writing Program. program yeah. yeah. So uh, we got a few things to talk about. Great, let's do it. Just lay back and relax. And uh, <laughs> so, first view from upstairs. Um, I really thought the book was really well done. I think you did a lot of. I mean, there's kind of a genre of like ensemble cast. You know, one room happens in one day musicals. But I felt you brought a lot of like kind of fresh structure to it with your book. You know, time travel back in time, you know, meeting in in a different character's perspective, moved in with, um, and, and the fact that you hand out the program at the end, and uh, I was unaware, you know, going in that this was a show that leads up to a tragedy, and definitely unaware, because you keep it so fun. Yeah, thank on. you so much. It's interesting you say that about the book, because I feel like the book breaks a lot of rules of what you can and can't do in a musical and I love musical theater it's what I want to do for the rest of my life but I'm someone who's very much interested in, in, in innovating with form and finding new ways to tell stories and I don't I you know I think you know Rodgers and Hammerstein had their innovate innovation and then Kander and Ebb had their innovation and I don't think you know there's a lot of people who have seen my show who who don't give me the benefit of the doubt I think with the book that I made a choice and they think I just don't know the rules and I don't know what I'm doing but it, it was a conscious decision to try to do something different and tell that story in a different way and I felt like with anything that engages in a fantasy element of time travel or anything <laughs> like that it's like when you see a great yeah. zombie movie like the best zombie movies don't explain why there are zombies it's just yeah. like there's fucking zombies yeah. and then we're in it and we're running away from zombies yeah. you know what I mean and so I feel like with the story that is about time travel and this love affair yeah. between two different eras of, of queer life to get bogged down in the back to the future esqueness of it of like now we're hopping in a DeLorean yeah. and now we're going to go back and we need to get the plutonium in order you know to save Biff and whatever it's like that to me would have totally bogged down the story and I it's more impressionistic it is that kind of thing of like this is just like almost like a magical seance that happens in yeah, an yeah. hour and 40 minutes and I, everyone, I totally got that and everyone it, gets their moments it, but it's definitely not a plot driven show i would say it's more it's an ensemble piece it's yeah. about exploring who these people were falling in love with the community and then the community's taken away from you and you have to kind of wrestle with that as someone living in 2017 of like what am i going to do to create more community like that yeah so I appreciate that. Thank you. I'm so glad you dug it. And, and I, I have to say, I hate people who refer to things as rules in art. Now, they are there, and they're helpful. But because they're there and because they're helpful, I prefer to think of the correct word as being tools. Yeah. You can build a house without a hammer. Yeah. But you better. You, but if you haven't started building a house with a hammer, you're, you're probably a little foolish to try doing it with something else. Well, but once you know what's going on, if you find a different way of putting in that nail in... I also believe that different generations of audiences uh, 
consume information in different ways. Like, and I'm very much interested in writing for my generation. And so uh, I feel like my generation has grown up with these digital devices in which we have 10 tabs running at the same time. And yeah. so we don't need everything, you know, laid, banged over the head, you know, with like, this has happened so that that happens so that that happens so that that happens. like we can deal with like We can multitask yeah. with information. And so it's the kind of thing where, you know, 20 years from now, hopefully there will be some kid who's telling stories in different ways and they'll be like, why didn't you do it like that? You know, <laughs> and then my shit will be old hat by then and status quo. And that's the way of the world, I guess. Now, how much did you envision the audience kind of being literally inside the bar as you wrote it? or And how much of that was done because of where you guys chose to stage it, where the entrance is quite literally through the stage? Well, I... <laughs> I was kind of open to the show being a proscenium show or being immersive. Right. Um, I love immersive theater, but it's definitely a fad right now. So I didn't want to do it as a gimmick just to do it. I wanted to do it if it felt very like it was going to enhance yeah. the text and 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 what was. And going I feel on it still could story. be done. It still could be done either way without changing. Yeah, it word. could. And it was the director Scotty Brissold who felt very strongly that we had to do it the immersive route because he felt like he wanted the audience to essentially be the patrons in the bar. And so to feel like this was their space and to fall in love with it and then have it taken away would from them would uh, accentuate the emotional impact of that. And I think that was the right decision. So we looked for venues for a really long time and the show almost didn't happen because we couldn't find a venue that was going to allow us to have that immersive experience. And then finally we found uh, the Lynn Redgrave Theater, which allowed us to do what we did. So, But that was definitely a part of the, the concept, of, I think, of the piece after a certain point in my collaboration with the director. Now, do you know some of the theaters that have set up to do the show next year? Um, I've heard of one of them. Um, sell, well, I don't know if I can. By this point, I feel like I can announce. I guess just, like, check back. Yeah, it's, check back. This may, may or may not be 100% accurate. It's all going to get announced <laughs> in, like, the next couple weeks. <laughs> so I guess I would say before this airs, if possible, let's... <laughs> check knock yeah. on wood that these actually happen but uh yeah. one was just announced one is happening at richmond triangle players in virginia which is an lgbt one of the i think the only lgbt theater in the atlantic area region um then celebration theater which is an lgbt theater out in los angeles is doing it um boston speakeasy stage company which is an equity house a large equity house in boston is going to do it which i'm very excited about there might be an Australian production happening. Yeah. And uh, I think this company in Chicago is going to jump at it, but that we're waiting to, to hammer out. But yeah, I mean, to me, I would love, I love doing it in New York. That, you know, is like a dream to have a New York theatrical production. But I feel yeah. like here in New York, that show is preaching to the choir a little yeah, bit. Yeah. It's preaching the converted. It's giving us hope. It's giving us historical context. But like, if you were to take the show to you know, Utah or Oklahoma yeah. or, you know, Mississippi, it would have a totally different reaction. You and know, I think that would make it dangerous and kind of exciting. And one thing I thought that I enjoyed about the book and the story and way you structured it is as in your face queer as the show is, I think that a straight audience would have a great time. You know, I, I, I think it works on both levels. Because I think a lot of times gay theater either really panders to the inside crowd, or really panders at trying to convert, you know, straight audiences, you know, over to their line of thinking. And I think your show just 
lets it be. You tell the story, you tell the characters. Yeah, well, what I think is interesting is if you look at, like, 95% of queer theater, uh, it's focused on the AIDS epidemic, which, like, yeah. rightly, you know, like, yeah. that that is important. But I was interested in telling um, pre-AIDS, which is almost never talked about, and what that world was like. And then also now, which yeah. is happening before us, so it hasn't been talked about yet yeah. because it's still unfolding. And I think because of that, it gives people a different perspective on those communities. And I think people can relate to the experience of being an outsider because that's ultimately what it's about. And in the show, you see even in a community of outsiders, yeah. there are still outsiders within the group of outsiders. There are still those hierarchies and cliques and all these different things that I think people can relate to. And personally for me, like, I go to theater to learn shit. So, like, I have no life experience, really, that, like, puts me in an August Wilson play. But, like, I love seeing August Wilson plays, you know? Yeah. So, to find out about that experience. Um, and that's my hope that people will have that, too, when they see The View of Stairs. Yeah. Yeah, I like that you didn't try to, like, make them angels or saints or over overdo the thing the show definitely had stakes and uh yeah they're complicated that's another thing yeah. that a lot of people really don't like for the people who don't like the show they don't like that the main character is like so unlikable and i'm like yeah. oh my god is that a read that character's based on me <laughs> but, <laughs> but i'm like and people are like oh he's a stereotype people are not like that and i'm like i'm like that <laughs> i'm working through my shit here okay <laughs> but to me it's like you have to allow people to be complicated in order for them to go on a journey. And there's a lot of qualities in my community that I see that I don't think are likable, you know? And I think there's a lot of people, this is something that I also wrestle with of, I feel like in my community, a lot of us are pursuing followings rather than community and it's yeah. not the same thing. And so that is something in my own life I'm trying to figure out like, how do I engage more in that? So I, I, I think in the show, the message is that it was not perfect in 1973. You know, you could get your head bashed in by a cop. You could die in an arson attack like this and be totally ignored. Um, but there also was a beautiful, colorful, vibrant yeah. community. And nowadays, we have all these rights comparatively and privileges. But some of that community now is very diffuse. So it's like there's something gained and there's something lost, I think. Yeah. So, um. I'm hoping you can talk about this because I, I think it, it's, it might be a fascinating thing for composers and writers at the place. I have one critique, and I don't know how much of a critique it is, um, it, it depends, but the one thing I was waiting for that didn't happen, and usually it does when you've got somebody who's a bigger name than the others, but Frenchie Davis is rather known to a certain generation, so I was constantly waiting for her big solo. Because we know she's a singer, yeah. she knows she's being in the community, <laughs> and and so on one hand, I'd probably say if you were, I applaud you for not altering your existing show for the sake of accommodating a star, but I imagine there must have been some pressure. Have you heard from other people? And and I, I'm just wondering how much you wrestled with this idea of doing. Yeah, I mean, she does get a solo number. She has that song, "The World Outside These Walls," which is kind of like Henry Henry's yeah. character's big song. That's the yeah. one where she's like, "That's just reality yeah. in 1973," and she's got that big F sharp that she belts. For yeah, like with the group. Yeah, but that didn't feel like her solo compared. Yeah, to yeah. I mean, actually, that's a legitimate critique. Yeah. And if you were to to tell me, but like if it's done in another theater and that's not cast with a famous name, it's not something I'm. It's not as big of a thing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I to me, I didn't want to totally prioritize any one character yeah. over the other. I did want to give them all 
equal weight to some extent, but in general with that character, I would like going forward like to flesh that character out a little bit yeah. more. Part of the problem is this is one of those places things where the economics of theater sometimes dictate the storytelling you can do because yeah. it's already amazing that we essentially got a Broadway show produced off Broadway. Like I remember yeah. in grad school, someone asked a teacher, how do you tell the difference between an off Broadway show and a Broadway show? And the teacher said, if you've got more than seven characters, you're writing a Broadway show <laughs> because a producer will never produce it because you've got all those salaries. You have to have yeah. the understudies that will cover them and all that. But in this, the author's note, one of the things I say is that, even though these are, you know, the nine main characters yeah. in the bar or whatever, I would love to have ensemble characters of people that are just walking around the bar. Yeah. They're just getting drinks that are filling out the atmosphere that don't necessarily. And you've got a lot of ensemble numbers that then they could join. Yeah, in exactly. And, and so that's one of those things that in my in the back of my mind when I was writing Frenchie Davis's character, I always assumed that there would just be some other random ensemble lesbian in the show <laughs> that was just there chilling yeah. out and then because she was there, she would be able to have interactions with Henry, and so Henry's character could then be more fleshed out, and they could have their own kind of like mini plot line. But because we weren't able to get those chorus members, um, I couldn't do that. So that's something that when there are, when we no longer are conf you know confined by equity and, and things like yeah. that, and it goes forward, and there are some you know, uh, amateur stock or regional productions will be able to do that. And I think that's something that could maybe get fleshed out and yeah. maybe continue to write. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I wish I could hear Frenchie sing everything. I mean, she sounds <laughs> fabulous. So that, that is a point well taken. Yeah. Like I said, not a deal when it's, it's not a star, but it was just, and it wouldn't be a deal if I went back, but it was just, but the first time I'm like waiting, okay, when's her number? When's her number? <laughs> But uh, like I said, I really enjoyed the show. Now, um, it's also quite, you don't even see a lot, especially with Off-Broadway anymore, it's it's expensive getting a cast album done and and the laws around it. And you do have the cast album is recorded and she probably is yeah, out right it's now. It's going to sound amazing. It's going to sound so good. I have to say, like, I... I, I mean, I love music, and I listen from every, everything from, like, Roy Orbison and Patsy Cline, Vintage Country, to, like, Marilyn Manson, to Sonic yeah. Youth, to, uh, you know, obscure 80s punk bands. Like, I, I just love any genre. And even though musical theater is the, the passion thing I want to do with my life, I don't listen to so many musical theater recordings because the recordings just are bad. Like, the yeah. people... Who record, I won't say which one, but there's a, there's a Tony nominee this year that I heard the cast album, and it's like... Distorted. It's like you know. Well, it, 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 uh, yeah, you listen. Were, you listen to a lot of these cast yeah. recordings, and they just don't sound yeah. like something you would want to listen to. Yeah. And this is definitely not that. I feel like it sounded so incredible in the studio. These are going to be songs that even if you never saw the show, I buy that people people who don't don't even think like would like musicals. I think will like the show and will we'll listen to the soundtrack. And so I'm very proud of that and excited and and hope that the cast album exposes uh, a new generation of, of people to the show. Well, I, I, I wish you a lot of fun exploring failure and success. Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> I really appreciate that. Thanks for coming in. Uh, Max Vernon. So All great right. meeting you. <laughs> All right. And if you'd like to hear more from Max Vernon, we always have the unedited interviews available at broadwaybullet.com. 
So just click on this episode and they are featured there. They're also in your uh, subscription feed. And in this particular unedited interview, we've got Max Vernon also talking about K-pop, which is just opened or is just about to open, but it's the brand new immersive theater experience. And uh, there's quite a lot there. So be sure you check that out. And before we head on to the next interview, we're listening to one more song from The View Upstairs and the newly released cast album. This is What I Did Today. Today I climbed the tallest tree in City Park And squawked at three old ladies strolling by Then I ran to Congo Square Where jazz perfumed the air And got my palm read by a voodoo priest with a glass eye Today Adventures had inspired songs and poetry. Then he smiled as if to say, I had good juju, hit him away. But he wouldn't take my money, he just winked and waved goodbye today. Ticket from a cop. There was jazz in Congo Square, but the voodoo priest wasn't there. I tried to sing along, but then God asked to stop. Today, the summer heat beats out my campfire, so I swam to the shallow depths of a plastic pool where there was no gold, not even a says do not admit but just when I was ready to write off today I met a boy who seemed a little bit like me a pretty boy who had a most distinguished nose it was a little strange because he did not know what year it was but I thought Up 
close. I am sitting here with Jay Harrison Gee, who is currently playing Lola on Broadway in Kinky Boots. In fact, Lola is your Broadway debut, is it not? It is. Yeah, yeah, it's exciting. <laughs> That's kind of big Kinky Boots to step into. <laughs> yeah, and I, I still pinch myself every day like, this is, this is happening. This is what I'm doing full time. And uh, how long have you been doing the role of Lola? I've done the role of Lola for over a year and a half. Uh, I started it out on tour after the first year of tour. Um, and I started the tour as the swing and Lola understudy. Okay. So my question is, first question is, how do you keep it so fresh? Because when I saw it on Wednesday night, and, I, and I've seen a lot of people done long runs. Yeah. I truly felt that you must have just been in it for a few weeks. You <laughs> still looked like you were just having so much fun. I, I saw you making like little connections with audience members during your things that were just, you know, yeah. clearly in the moment, you know, for someone who is just enjoying every moment. And I do. It, it, I enjoy it. Um, Kinky Boots, uh, the material itself is set up so well that as long as I trust it and go in and have fun with it every night, it kind of makes its, its own life fresh. Um, and it helps that I've been doing drag outside of the show <laughs> for about six years. Okay. Um, so I understand the life. Of, of Lola and the drag cabaret artist um, lifestyle. And it's just, it is, it's fun to be able to live this life every night, eight times a week. <laughs> so uh, let's go back up now a little bit. What, what has your career been leading up to Kinky Boots? Um, well, I moved to New York when I was 18 to study theater at uh, the American Musical and Dramatic Academy and uh, did the conservatory program. So I did that for two years. And then I worked at Tokyo Disney for about two years. That was my first job. And after that, came back to the city and jumped into having a drag career here as a side hustle while I was auditioning and doing, you know, that day, uh, during the daytime. Uh, and after that, I went and did cruise ships for a couple years. And through it all, I've kind of like kept drag on the side as my little side hustle and fun gig and... Now drag has kind of helped me make my Broadway debut. Yeah. And uh, that, that's fantastic. You, you clearly have <laughs> worked out your progression. Yeah. Well, how is drag as a side hustle? I mean, I, you know, I mean, it seems like there's actually a lot of people that you know make a decent amount of money in a living as as drag queens. Absolutely, but. there. Are, I still have friends who do it full time, and yeah. that's the only job they have, and it's very consuming. Um, and it's fun. I, the reason I started doing drag was because, and this is what I had to explain to my father, uh, who's a Southern Missionary Baptist pastor. <laughs> <laughs> I had to explain to him that drag was just a creative art form that I had complete control over. As artists, we are subjected to having directors and producers and people who are in charge of us all the time and telling us what box we should fit into and what we should be doing for a specific role. Um, but as a drag performer, I have control over everything. I can do whatever hair I want. I can make whatever costume. I can perform whatever number I want to do. And it's fun, and I get to affect people and create and have, you know, so much fun while I do it. Now, what might there be involved with a drag queen performance that the average person, even in entertainment, might not know goes into it? Oh, my gosh, so much. Uh, for about six or seven months, I had my own show every Friday night. Uh, called The Crystal Fix at New World Stages Time Out Lounge. And uh, I tried my best to make every show different, so I made a log of all the songs I performed, whether I sang them live or lip-synced them, if I had guests, depending on the outfit I wore, depending on the hair, the makeup. <laughs> so there's a lot that goes into it. You have to think of it 
literally you are the production team you are the creative team um so it's a lot that goes into becoming a drag queen and making it effective and then and then i also imagine making it your own you know i mean Absolutely. not just that but not not relying on just what everybody else is doing yeah to find do you do you know how to like pinpoint or verbalize your own unique spin on on your drag character well i i market myself as my, my drag name is crystal demure <laughs> and um i say i'm new york's drag queen of soul i you know everything i do there's heart there's purpose and there's intention and so i just do everything with love and fabulosity <laughs> and not everybody does that there are a lot of girls who, you know, they, they do the edgy thing well, yeah. or they do the 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 rock glam, whatever yeah, they, yeah. you know, they do whatever they do. But I like to mix it up. I don't like to have just one thing. I keep people on their toes. They never know what they're going to get from me, and they're always pleasantly surprised. So along with that, how much your 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 pipes are phenomenal. Thank you. Yeah, and you have to be to take on this role and, you know, on Broadway. Yeah. What what have you done to train? I mean, is is this all a God's gift, or have you done a lot of training to develop that out? Or most of it is God's gift. I've been. Yeah. I say I came out of my mother singing. I've been singing in <laughs> church since I was a little kid. So it's just it's what I do. Um, but you know, I did go to school and study, and yeah. I have now learned techniques to be safe and to be healthy. Yeah, that, uh... to maintain. Um, and then while I was on the road, I, you know, would do voice lessons every week just to check in and, and find new things and ways to help because touring yeah. was a journey in itself. And, uh, you know, before going on tour, I never had issues with allergies <laughs> and all of a sudden, here different I place, am. different air, yeah. different thing. Oh yeah. And I was losing my voice and I was like, what is happening? Um, and so I started doing voice lessons and that helped me learn how to maintain and, and take good care of my voice. And are you able to sleep very well when you're on the road? Yeah. You do? Yeah, okay. So, yeah. yeah. It's, for me, that would be the hard part is, I don't know, new locations, you know, all the time would make it hard for me to sleep. I think I, I'm the kind of person that I, I make the best of every situation I, and I'm good at adapting. So I just like figure it out and yeah. you're like, all right, here we are. New city, new day. Let's go. And, and are there any techniques that you developed here then through that? Because eight performance, you do eight performances a week. Eight is performances Lola, a week. That's a pretty demanding role. It is. It's quite a lot. Um, the tour really prepared me for it, because uh, even before then, I had never done eight shows a week. Yeah. Um, and <clears throat> so I, the tour helped me mostly, and I've just learned to, to live my life and have fun and still be able to do my job. Um, and I'm just blessed to be able to do it every night. <laughs> so what's your, what's your favorite moment or part of... I imagine you connect with a little a lot. I mean, my father—not my father's son—from what you were just saying oh, about absolutely. your father being a Baptist minister, there has to be a little bit of a connection there. Yeah, with the role. and it's hard. It depends on the show. It depends on the night. Um, because I love—I love every part yeah. of the show, and there are some days you feel certain parts more than others. But usually, not my father's son or hold me in your heart is kind of where I get to dig in, and I say the show is my therapy. And I get to put my mess into the show and just get it out. So every bit of it is just fun, and I can dig into what it is I need to get out. Yeah, this is the second time I saw the show. Mm -hmm. and, and seeing it the second time, especially because I had seen Billy Porter do ah. other things before. But watching you do the show, who I had, hadn't been familiar with, I think one of the most effective points of the show is the fact that um, Simon mm -hmm. is not revealed till later. 
because I think even for you know straight audiences, yeah. I think a lot one of the big effective points is when you make your entrance at Simon, and and even when when he did, yeah. it feels wrong. You know, and I, and I think that's it. I think that's almost the most brilliant, subtle education. Oh, absolutely, you know, for an audience. And you and you feel that energy because they don't know what to expect. Do you yeah. hear the angels singing Lola, <laughs> and you're like, Yeah, Lola's <laughs> coming back out. Yeah. And then this man steps yeah. out, and you're like, Wait, huh, what? <laughs> um, and it's yeah, it's definitely a moment I feel. And you hear the audiences; they all respond differently. There are a lot of audiences. Some will yeah. laugh along with the guys who laugh in the factory. <laughs> There's some people who just kind of. Mm, or you, you'll hear people, I've heard people catcall sometimes. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay, well, thank you. Uh, but, yeah, it's definitely an educational moment of like, okay, this is where you're about to feel something or learn something. And that's what Kinky Boots does. It's, it starts a conversation that people aren't normally willing to have or comfortable having. Listen, I loved Kinky Boots when it first started, and I think it's a great show, but I did not expect it to run this long. Yeah. And it's still going really strong. Yeah, in its fifth year. Has... Has all the public, do you think all the discussion in the media and the political climate, you know, um, increased the audience's desire to get what they get out of the oh, show? Oh, absolutely. It's, the show is more important now than yeah. it was when it started. Um, and even more so, I think, out on the road, on tour, that's what we enjoyed the most. A lot of those theaters were subscription-based. So these people just had tickets to this show that they had yeah. no idea what it was. <laughs> And you yeah. see that couple come and that man who's like, well, my wife dragged me here. Let's see this. What's... And by the end of the show, he loves it and is up singing and clapping and dancing. And it, it is a part of, of, like I said, it's a, a conversation that's being started that wasn't being had before. So being a replacement in a major, iconic, what's definitely turning into a very iconic role. Yeah. I think a lot of people want to play. Yeah, definitely seen. I definitely saw the places you were making it your own, and I'm curious: what are the limitations and what are the freedoms in stepping into an existing role in a Broadway machine? Where, where where do you have to toe the line and 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 do what was done before? And where do you get to make your own choices and your own interpretation? With Lola specifically, I think there's a little more freedom than there would normally yeah. be in other shows, um, because. Lola is such a large character, and even in the breakdown, they're saying, they say, you know, looking for someone who isn't a wallflower, yeah. and you can't just kind of yeah. fit in. Um, and Lola, the character herself, is so out of the box, it's hard to tame her. <laughs> so um, there are definitely parameters in which we have to be true to the story and, and what it is, but other than that, you kind of, you you have to, own it, because if you don't own it, the audience yeah. doesn't believe it, and it doesn't fully work. Yeah. So, because, uh, yeah, definitely, like, your interpretation of the whole sex. <laughs> you know, they, you, know you, you, yeah, yeah. you definitely had your own flavor to a lot of things. Right, so. and of course, the, you know, they'll come in, and if something isn't yeah. working, they're like, eh, that was cute, but no, don't try something else. <laughs> or try this that we've seen work before. But usually, so how much? Yeah. So how much does it evolve even while you're? Oh, it's still doing changing. It? Yeah. I, I've been doing the role for a year and a half, and I'm still finding new things every night. Um, and I've had countless Charlies I've done the show <laughs> with. You know, different people you interact with, and it makes it different. It feels different. So I'm still learning, and still finding, and still growing. Well, Jay Harrison, it was an incredible time talking to thank you thank you such a pleasure i wish you the best of luck in thank future you. endeavors i i hope you like maybe touch base let us know what's up we'd like to absolutely tell our listeners and 
keep keep knocking them dead in hinky boots. Thank you so much. Cabaret Corner. I am here with Gabrielle Stravelli, a singer and songwriter uh, who has just put out a jazz pop album called Dream Ago. That's right. Yeah. And uh, she's here to talk with us about that and getting it made and probably everything she's getting done in her career in New York City. How are <laughs> you doing? I'm trying to, anyway. <laughs> I'm well, thank you. Thanks Good. for having me. Yeah, well, first, I can start off telling us a little bit about this album you put together. Did you um, put together? Did you self-produce this? I actually worked with a producer. Okay. His name is David Cook. Okay. And people may be familiar with him. Um, he has worked with some really fantastic singers who are well-known. Um, he is married to and works with a wonderful singer by the name of Shana Steele, <laughs> who's done, you know, is kind mm. of a, an artist um, who I love because she does a lot of different things, and she's done theatrical work and pop and R&B and jazz. You know, she, she lives in, in many genres. Um, he is currently the musical director for... An artist you may have heard of by the name of Taylor Swift. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> um, and he's worked with great people like Jennifer Hudson and mm. Billy Porter. So he was um, he produced the album, and um, I had a really wonderful experience working with him. And I had a big hand in mm. you know yeah. what what the final product is. But he he is the album's producer, um, and that was a really fun experience for me. It was the first time working with a producer on an album, and it was a good one. Yeah. It's a different thing when they hand over the reins and let somebody else try to give you their thoughts. And Yeah, I mean, for me, it's super helpful. I, I think, you know, it's like having a director or yeah. an editor of your writing, you know? Yeah. I, I think it's so great to have somebody who's on the outside of the project who can just be a little more objective <laughs> and just offer different viewpoints or ways of doing things, you know, because when you're... In something, it can be hard to <laughs> see things in, in certain ways. So I, I think it's a really important person to have. Now, unlike a lot of uh, jazz albums that people are putting out, this is largely original music, right? It is. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there's a fair amount of both in the jazz world. There is this tradition of covering material and interpreting standards, and that's really such a big part of the form, and that's there's that sort of tradition that's involved with it. But there's a lot of, I mean, the great thing is there's a lot of new music being made, which I think is important for keeping the form alive and moving things forward. Um, and yes, yeah, so this album, um, nine of the 12 tracks are originals. And that was another new thing for me too, because previously mm -hmm. I'd, I'd put out two albums before this and they were for the most part all all arrangements of standards. And I had such a, a different sense of ownership <laughs> over this one, um, you know, because it was my own material in a really awesome way. It just feels really good <laughs> um, and something I enjoyed very, very much. Well, why don't we take a moment and, and play one of your originals that you feel really good about? Why, Great. Why don't you tell us about what we're going to play? Let's play a song called Prism. Um, this is really one of the bigger, if not the biggest track on the album, um, and, and I want to give credit to Pat O'Leary. He's the bassist on the record and also did most of the arrangements. And, and I'm really like, so this was such a big collaboration for us. And I love the way that it turned out. Um, 
And it's sort of the album's big production number. It's just like a small orchestra on this thing. <laughs> um, and it's this idea of um, being in a relationship where um, instead of sort of being the same, you can sort of um, reflect each other and be together, but still really be doing your own thing. I'll leave it as that. Okay. And, and the uh, listeners can take what they will from it. I, I hope they enjoy it. This is Prism. All right. Time it passes by me so slowly. Time shows me things that I only see in visions of soul-searching realism. You come to me with arms open. You show me things and I'm hoping that our love will Makes me look at the world around me with more hope, less fatalism. You, you greet the world with heart open. You show me things, and I'm hoping that our love will be less of a mirror, more of a prism, revealing the shades of.
Now, you said you dabbled a bit in the theater world as yeah. well. Um, you yourself, or do you know others? I've I've always found it a little difficult myself, because I do music and theater both, mm -hmm. and, you know, and times leaning towards one of the other sides, that recently a lot towards theater of teaching. But um, how do you balance, or, do, or do, you, do you wish you could do more theater? How do you find ways to balance it? Do you know other friends who try to balance music and theater? Because as seemingly compatible as they are, yeah. they're really not. Well, I Career wise. Think, yeah, I mean, because I think you do, like, you can't be all things to mm. all people. And pursuing those things is, you know, you have to be focused and it takes a lot of time. It mm. takes a lot of time for me to, to look into venues and try to book myself. And, and it's going to take somebody, you got to pound the pavement and, and go to all kinds of auditions. And, you know, so, yes. Yeah, so, so in, I think the main reason it sometimes is incompatible is because. You don't want to end up being like, you know, dabbling in all kinds of different things, yeah. but never really getting yourself sort of cemented in any one scene. Because you have to do that. You have to sort of really get in the community. Um, I mean, performing-wise, I think, like you said, they are compatible mm. because I feel like it's all music and what you do in one in one area so often can inform what you do in another. Um, so that's a great thing and something that I find super satisfying. I love doing a lot of different things. It just makes for a really mm -hmm. interesting career. And there's also sort of that aspect of, um, as a freelancer, it sort of helps to, you know, have a, 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 a diversify mm -hmm. You know, and have yeah. different streams of income and different, you know, that 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 does help. Um, but I just think the incompatibility comes. I for me, it's like I really focus on pursuing work as as Gabrielle Stravelli, the mm. singer, you know, with my band performing my material. Um, and when other opportunities come my way. In, in theater, then I'm certainly open to them. And if time mm. permits, I, I take them because I love doing that work too. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I do think you, you kind of have to focus and, and really choose where you're going to spend your energy. All right. Well, should we play another song from your CD? Let's. Um, this is 
I think my favorite track from the album, it's a song called The Cake of My Childhood. And um, the idea of this song actually came from um, a tour I did overseas. In 2015, I got this wonderful opportunity to do a month-long tour sponsored by the U.S. State Department. Mm. They have a program called American Music Abroad. Uh, where they send about 10 bands out every year in different genres that are considered American music. So mm. jazz, bluegrass, gospel, what have you. Um, and the first country that we visited, and that they send musicians out as, like, as a form of cultural diplomacy. Mm. And the first country that we visited was Moldova and in Eastern Europe, mm -hmm. if you're wondering. I didn't know where that was either before <laughs> I visited there. Um, <laughs> The first night, you know, you know when Stephen Colbert does that on the. Was it Stephen Colbert? No, it's John Oliver oh. who does the map and goes. We're going to talk about Peru. <laughs> no, and that's not Peru. <laughs> no, that no, that's not Peru. <laughs> I'm one of those people. I admit my geography is horrible. Yeah, I'm sorry. like, oh, really? Okay. Yeah, you can't know <laughs> everything. No, Smart no a lot of things, but geography is not my strong suit. Um, <laughs> and I mean, Moldova is a somewhat obscure yeah. location. Um, so the first night that we were there, we were having a meal and somebody was translating the menu for us. And and it came time for dessert. And she said, gosh, I, I don't know how to um, translate this. I don't know how to describe it for you because the name of the dessert in English translates to the cake of my childhood. Mm -hmm. And I, like, I thought that was such an evocative phrase. I just thought mm -hmm. that was such a great phrase, the cake of my childhood. And I, I turned to... Pat O'Leary, the bassist on, and arranger on the record, and I, I said, I gotta write a song about that. So here's the cake of my childhood. Cake of my childhood, taste of cotton candy, lemon, and lime. As only a childhood, I'm running wild for the very first time. That's the cake of my childhood, tasting of cotton candy, lemon, and lime. As only a childhood, I'm running wild for the very first time. I was sitting in a pretty pink dress there upon my daddy's knee. He said, see that girly in the mirror there? She can go and be whatever she wants to be. This world is your oyster, sitting in the palm of your hand. Don't worry, just jump on it. As long as there is gravity, then I know that you will land. Cake of my childhood, taste of cotton candy, lemon and lime. As only a childhood, I'm running wild for the very first time. Take my word, little one, he said. You know, someday some fool will try to school you. They'll put you down if they can. Tell you that the world belongs to a man. But you know just what to do. Show them all you got and tell them I can't cook too. If you conceive it, then just believe it. You do well to go and give them hell. Cake of my childhood. Tasting of God and candy, lemon and lime. As on the good childhood, I'm running royal for the very first time. Shed it, let it, shed it, let 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 it, let
one day some fool will try to school you. They'll put you down if they can. Tell you that the world belongs to a man. But you know just what to do. Show them all you got and tell them I can cook too. If you conceive it, then just believe it. You do well to go and give them All right. That was great. Thank you. Well, um, before we get going, do you have any other parting words of wisdom to musicians Mm. navigating the jazz scene in New York City? Well, gosh, what do I know? Um, I think what's worked, you know, I'll share what's what's worked for me. And um, I think, what would I want to say? Two things. You got to hustle. You know, um, I, I, I know it sounds um, obvious to say, like, you, ha- you can't wait for jobs to come to you. Mm-hmm. You have to go out. You have to get yourself out there. Um, but I think the reality of it is much more challenging. Because, first of all, it's just, like, awesome to lay on the couch every <laughs> night. <laughs> That's all I really want to do. Mm-hmm. But you can't do that. you got to... Go to jam sessions and go to open mics. And this mm. is for everybody. This is for anybody, mm. whether, whatever you are pursuing, mm. theater, jazz, anything. You have to get to know people and 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 make yourself known. You know, go out there and show the world. <laughs> I'm just scoring you. I love, thank you. <laughs> well, it's true, though, what you do. I was doing a little sort of master class mm. on, like, how to, you know, go about stuff living in New York City and I was saying like you know it, it it does come down to who you know but the wonderful thing about that is you have control over who you know yeah you can get to know people yeah and it doesn't have to feel icky you know like you can just go and basically hang out and get to know people it doesn't always it doesn't need to be about mm, getting a job or getting to know people so they'll hire you you just need to get to know people um, and things will, will sort of, and then, and then things can take care of themselves a little bit, you know, from there, um, show up and be prepared. Please don't drink yeah. right at the beginning of the night. Yeah. Wait until you sing or play or do your thing yeah. and then have a cocktail. Yeah. <laughs> Cause we will, you'll, you'll yeah. go out and you'll see that drunk guy on stage and it's not a good look. Yeah. Um, so try not to do that. Um, and then I think the other really important thing to remember is that there is no expiration date. Don't give yourself a deadline, you know, just get out there and do the work. As long as you're doing the work, good things will happen. Um, I I know we all put pressure on ourselves and it can feel like if you don't have like some award or Broadway credit, um, when you're an embryo that you <laughs> failed already and that is not the case people find success at all stages of their careers and it's different for everybody so just get out there and 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 do the work and and that's all you need to worry about all right well thanks for coming in and chatting My with pleasure. us gabrielle stravelli check Thank out you. her cd which is titled dream ago dream ago yes thanks, all right michael best of luck thank you
Curtain Call. Well, my friends, that is it for this week's episode. Again, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and we are going to be back in uh, two weeks on October 10th. And we got some great stuff. Um, If you're into tech or that blind area of how does it cost so much? Why does it take so long to do a Broadway load-in? We've got a fantastic interview with Ben Heller of Aurora Productions to give you all the lowdown of exactly what goes into a Broadway load-in. And it is way more interesting than you're thinking from what I'm saying. We've also got Babette Godfrey, who talks with us about her process of getting a a residential performance visa in the U.S. Might be of interest to some of those foreign performers looking to get in. Uh, Plus, she's a fascinating woman. We've also got Katie Kozlowski. She's performed and talked on the show before. Uh, She's got a new venture, lovingtobeme.com, which really gets into a lot of self-help and self-love for artists, because we are always way too hard on ourselves. So that's a little preview of what's coming up next week. Again, going to be back in New York City getting interviews October 23rd through the 27th. So if you know somebody who I should be talking to, give me an email at broadwaybulletnyc at gmail.com. Well, until next week, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and you've been on The Broadway Bullet. One more special thanks to our sponsors, the Dramatist Guild Fund, great resources for theater artists of all kinds, as well as the University of Providence School of Theater and Business Arts. Learn the art of being an artist and the business of being an artist. 